I was telling them earlier that I think if I began preaching like that, you all might stay awake more, but uh, if I did that for an hour, I think I would be dead by the time we got done. Um, so uh, I'm not going to do that. Um, but that would be fun to do that. If you have your Bible with you, I'd like for you to go to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. If you don't have your Bible, the um, screen will be up there. Um, but let me encourage you, if you don't bring your Bible, um, bring your Bible. We need to be making notes, uh, stuff, you know, if it's, a, if it's an electronic device, at least make sure you can view your Bible and you can make notes on there because that's the important thing, not just to see it. Uh, there's lots of things in life that we just see and don't ever do anything about. And so uh, we need to... Uh, to, uh, to be able to do that. So let me encourage you guys to do that. The, the thing that I want, to, um, I want to do real quick is I want to review for us. We're in the series called The Gospel. And we basically start out this series on the gospel because, I, like, you just ask so many Christians, and I'm going to do this to you in a few moments, but you ask people, what is the gospel? And we might have a half answer at best. And it's the core of our Christianity is the core of who we are. Um, so we started the series on the gospel. In the first week, uh, we talked about God, about the gospel that is about a person and not about a program. It's not about a process, but it's about a person. Uh, then we went to Mother's Day and started talking about some Mother's Day things and and how the gospel looks in light of being a mother. Then last week. We started talking, or a couple weeks ago, we started talking about, I'm sorry, the week before Mother's Day was our week that we talked about where Jesus says that you cannot be my disciple unless you hate your mother, hate your father, hate your brother, hate your sister, hate, yes, hate all of them, hate even yourself. If you do not do that, you cannot be a disciple of mine. And we pointed out that that week that when Jesus was saying that, he wasn't saying that to mature believers. He wasn't saying that to a group of Christians. He wasn't saying that even necessarily to the Pharisees, but he was saying that to a group of onlookers who were considering being disciples of Christ. And he says to them, if you do not hate your mother, your father, your brother, that you cannot even be my disciple, that you have to carry your cross, you have to die to yourself, you cannot even be my disciple unless you do that. And yet how we present the gospel today, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about this again, but we present the gospel today as, well, you know, just, you just got to give, give everything over to Jesus. And, and that's what you, you know, and read your Bible and go to church. And, and that's what Christianity looks, that's what the gospel, that's how, how we present the gospel. And that's not how Jesus presented the gospel Matter of fact, it's been, this series has been a challenge to me in my personal life and how I share the gospel. I shared the gospel with, with a guy um, a week ago, and I tell you what, guys, just in light of what I've learned and what we're teaching and talking about, like, it was just an awesome experience. Uh, and I just, you know, you just, when you do something that you know is right, like, and God's word just affirms what you did. Like, that's how I felt in that moment was that, God, you're on top of this because this is your word. This is how, how you explain it. This is how your, your son explained it to us. And so um, in that, basically, in that week, we talked about how Christ in that passage 
what he is saying is that he, we have to give all of our love to Christ. Like it's not Christ first and then our family. Guy, that's, that is ridiculous. That is not biblical. It's not God first, then our family, and then our church. And it, it is not, it is all God. All of our affections belong to God 100%. Then we love our family, we love our church, we love our other things out of our relationship with God. That's the only way to even do what Paul says when he says to to men in Ephesians 5, to love your wives as Christ loved the church. The only way to do that is to love them with the love of Christ. And so if you're loving them with your love, your love has an end point. But if you're loving Christ with all that you have and you're loving your wife with the love of Christ, then you can fulfill Ephesians 5. A superior love. He also says an exclusive loyalty uh, meaning we are dead to ourselves, dead to our dreams, dead to our plans, dead to all those things, and we are alive to Christ's dreams, Christ's plans. That is what it means to be a dead man walking, carrying a cross. That's why Paul says in Galatians 2.20, that is not I, or I'm, for I am crucified with Christ, it's no longer I that lives, but Christ who lives in me. The only way to do that is to die to ourselves and our dreams and our plans and to be alive to Christ's dreams, Christ's plans, and Christ's desires. That is a person who's carrying their cross. That is exclusive loyalty. And then the third thing he says in that passage is total loss. We have to be willing to lose it all in order to be a disciple of Christ. And that's what Jesus says to a group of unbelievers who are looking at him going, do I want to follow this Jesus? Do I not? And he says, look, the stakes are so high, it's going to cost cost you your life. And when we present the gospel today, we say, you know, hey, is you have a better life now. You know, have a more abundant life. And yet those are true, but that's not at the core of the gospel. We don't present the, the, the benefits of the gospel without explaining the core of the gospel, the requirements in the gospel. You see, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but we want the benefits, but we don't want God and that's a problem. Because without God, we have no salvation. We have no gospel. This week, what we're going to do, and look, pull out your note, your note thing. It, it is a separate sheet, and it is front and back. This week, we're going to look at the objective content of the gospel. The objective content content of the gospel. Let me say, if you've been a Christian for a long time, well, even if you've been a Christian for a long time, you really need to take good stinking notes, okay? You really do. Um, What I want you guys to do, I want you to pull out your note, and what I want you to do on the back, I want you to answer this question. I want you to write out this question. Everybody, pin. On your notes, I want you to answer this question. What is the gospel? All right, so the gospel is good news. You can't use that answer, okay? The gospel means good news. But the good news is what? The good news is what? Take about a minute and answer that question. It's going to be silent. I'm not going to entertain you while you're answering that question. There you go. Do, 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 do.
Just a little bit more time. Remember, you cannot put the gospel as good news. I already took that one. Okay. All right. So I hope you have that written down. And uh, as you're finishing up that, let me, let's pray, and, uh, and then we'll go on. Father, I, um, I pray that, above all else, that we walk out of here closer to you than we were when we walked in. And, Father, that we walk out of here with a better understanding of the gospel than we did when we walked in. And, Father, my biggest prayer is this, is that if there is someone in here who has not accepted the gospel, has not accepted Christ, has not been changed, has not been redeemed, has not been justified by the blood of your Son, that you would show them the necessity of that today. And, Father, for those of us who have been saved, who who have accepted Christ, who, who have been redeemed and bought by the blood of Christ, that, that we would walk out of here with more assurance, with more confidence in the faith and the life that you've called us to live. And Father, it's to that end that we look at, a, at Romans chapter 3. Father, thank you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So I really believe that, guys, in the church today, we have a famine when it comes to the gospel. Like, we, we should be living and breathing and dying the gospel and Jesus in our lives. And yet, we can go half a day without even thinking about Christ. We can go a whole day without thinking about Some of us can go a week without thinking about Christ. And, and, and not just here, but in all kinds of churches and other places. We, we, we can do that. We, it's just because we don't understand the power. We don't understand the richness of the gospel. And, you know, there are many people who have been in church for a while and only have vague ideas of what the gospel is. Um, and I want you guys to walk away today being able to fully describe and explain what the gospel is. It's simple, but yet it's very complex. Um, you know, Martin Luther, in this passage we're going to look at, Martin Luther called this chapter that we're going to look at the chief point of the whole Bible. Martin Luther called it the chief point of the whole Bible. And um, this is one of the most important texts in the Bible. It's a picture of the gospel. It's what we see in Romans chapter 3. So in Romans chapter 3, we're going to start at verse 21, and we're going to read through verse 26. I want you to look for, in this, chap, in this verses we're going to read, I want you to look for the objective content of the gospel as we read, and then we're going to talk about it. Romans 3 verse 21 through 26 says, but now the righteous, now, now key, he, he and right there from the very beginning, but now. So there's something that came before this that's very important that is tied to this verse, and we're going to talk about it. But he says in verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been made manif- has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. 
It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, listen very, very carefully, guys. This, this is such a rich passage. It's so intense doctrinally. There's like three major doctrines that are covered in this verse. I don't want to just use churchy terms. And we're going to define that word propitiation. Um, but there's lots in this passage, and I'm going to try to cover a whole lot, and I've only got 40 minutes left to do it, okay? So we're going to crank right through. I need you guys just to stay with me. Please don't get lost. There's so much we got to talk about. And so let's rock and roll. Um, one sentence description of the gospel. I want to give you to you. Um, Dr. Platt wrote this sentence to, to uh, some of you guys know who Dr. Platt is, and i I can't come up with anything better. I agree with him theologically and what he, he wrote here. And so I'm going to quote this for you. And it's on your paper. It says this. The just and gracious God of the universe. So this is the answer to what is the gospel. The gospel is this. The just and gracious God of the universe looked upon hopelessly sinful people and sent his son Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection so that all who have faith in him will be reconciled to God forever. I understand that is a loaded sentence with a lot of material in it. Um, You know, it, it seems complicated. Like, and we live in a church culture that says the gospel, we want to just simplify it to the most simple expression. And guys, the goal should never be to simplify the gospel to its most simple thing. Why? That's not the goal. We should not, we should not do that. You know, it says, you know, some people say, well, isn't the gospel easy enough for a child to understand? Scripture doesn't talk about being easy enough for a child to understand. Scripture talks about it being coming to child with a childlike faith, a blind faith. Don't confuse those two things together. We say, well, that you know, a three-year-old can understand or a two-year-old can understand it. Well, maybe, maybe not. There is some intellectual understanding of the gospel. That is important, that is crucial, that is necessary, that is vital. So, we need to look in the gospel in its totality. And I want to, I want to tell you, I debated on breaking this sermon up over two weeks. And I decided not to, because I want us to see the whole picture of it in one sitting. Because I think it would be more valuable to us, because we can forget things between weeks. Um, so, we're going to hit... This um, this really hard. So well, here's what I want to do. We're gonna I'm gonna unpack Romans chapter three verse twenty one through twenty six. But we're gonna use that sentence that we just read as basically our guideline as we go through. So this sentence in light of Romans chapter three verse twenty one through twenty six. So the first section you see in your notes there, I want you to look at is the just and gracious God of the universe. Romans 3.21, go back to Romans 3.21, says this, but now the righteousness of God. So Paul starts off with, but now. So what happens, there's, there's a whole lot that just happened going into this passage. And what has happened is that Paul, in chapters 1, verses 18, through chapter 3, 
in verse 21, like right of verse 20, I'm sorry, right before this passage that we just read, from 118 to 320, he is painting a portrait of God and man and his relationship to each other. So he's painting this picture of God and man, and he says, but now the righteousness of God. So what we're going to do is just very quickly go through this picture that Paul is painting from 118 to 320 because it sets the stage for our understanding of chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. It says this, Romans 1.16, if you have your Bible, you can turn there real quick. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So first Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So it's the means by which God provides salvation, is the power of God for salvation. And then Paul, after verse 116, he begins to describe who God is, the character of God, And he begins, this is what I think is so funny, he begins with the wrath of God. Paul begins his portrait of God and man and their relationship together. He begins with the wrath of God. Romans 1.18, so just two verses down from 116. 1.18 he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. In this section, I want us to see three attributes of God that Paul uses to paint this portrait leading into this great passage in chapter 3. The first thing that we see is that God is the creator. God is the creator. On your notes there, God is the creator. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible qualities. It says at the very, the very end of chapter 1, verses 20, or verse 20, ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been, and then in one, chapter 1, verse 24 through 25, it says, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies and themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and, and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Paul says God is the one who created us. And it's also important that God revealed himself to us as creator. I mean, that's scripture. That's what Paul's talking about. He revealed himself to us as our creator. This is crucial. With God being our creator, you know what that means? That means that he owns us and that he has rights over us. He owns us and has rights over us. That's key. The second attribute that we see in these passages here is that God is judge. God is judge. In Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, you see God and the judgment of God mentioned over and over and over again. Hear me, the judgment of God. Romans chapter 2 Verses 1 through 3, read this with me. It says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. 
We know the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches, riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I love that phrase. I, I hate it as far as like what it means for me, but as far as what it means doctrinally, what, that, that you will escape the judgment of God. And in Romans chapter 2, just a few verses down in verse 6, he says, He will render to each one according his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. He will render to each one according to his works. Every person, hear me so, so clearly, every person who ever lived will be judged by God. You will be judged by God. I will be judged by God. The scary thing is when you get to chapter 3 and verse 5, it says that God is just in bringing his wrath on us. He is just in unleashing his wrath on us. The reality is this, is that our creator will one day judge every single one of us. I hope that sets really stinking heavy. If it doesn't, then there's, there's something disconnected up here. We will face the judgment of God. Everyone. But Paul in this passage does not leave it with judgment. And God is not, God's attributes does not end at his judgment. Romans 3, 23 through 24 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is right in the middle of the passage that we're talking about. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Number three is this, God is gracious. God is gracious. He gives unmerited favor. This is the portrait of God in Romans 1 through 3. The portrait of God in Romans 1 through 3 leading up to the but now is that God is the creator, God is judge, and God is gracious. We have to understand these things in order to understand the gospel. So let's go back to that phrase that we're at. That's kind of our guideline. It says, The just and gracious God of the universe looked upon hopelessly sinful people. So Paul in this beginning, in this passage leading up, he's explaining God, a portrait of God, and now he's going to explain man and man's relationship to God. Um, and again, back to the passage, our, our core passage for today, Romans 3.23, and we all know this verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the fact is, is that this means every single one of us. This means every single one of us. But you know, leading up to this, Paul doesn't just say, look, guys, you're all a bunch of sinners. 
Now, Paul leading up to the but now, Paul makes one of the most stinging indictments on mankind of all time in this passage. And we're going to read that in chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. It says this, As it is written, none is righteous. And actually, Paul is quoting from the Old Testament here. It says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an empty grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He's talking about you and me. This is not these people over here. He's talking about us. He's talking about all people of all time. This is us. We are a hopelessly sinful people. Not one of us. Not not your pastor. This is describing all of us. We are hopelessly sinful people. Just like we talk about three main things with God in these passages, three primary truths in Romans chapter 3 pertaining to us. The first one is this. We have rebelled against God. We have rebelled against God. To be hopelessly sinful means that we have rebelled against God. Guys, the whole context of Romans 3, 21 through 26 is talking about the law of God and how we have broken God's law. The law is written on, on, on this book and the law is written in our hearts. Because we have all gone against God. Everyone. This began in Genesis chapter 3. You know, Adam and Eve in the garden. Who cares if God said don't eat from the tree? Really? I mean, God didn't really say that. You know, we're going to do it anyways. You know, God said not to, but you know what? We're going to do it anyways. It started here and it continues. You know, we, and, and hear me, I, don't puff up. We have, all of us, have spurned the lordship of God on our lives and said that we are going to do things our own way. We all have. I have. Said, God, you know what? I'm going to do it my way. I want you to think about this for a second. Just just think about this for a second. The God who says to the wind and the rain, you blow here and you fall here, they do it immediately. Immediately. The God who says to the mountains, you are here, they, and you stop right here. Those mountains obey immediately. The God who calls the storm clouds together, tells them when to rain, when not to rain, they obey. The God who tells the sea where to stop and where to start, they obey him. The God to whom all creation responds in perfect obedience is the God that we say I think I have a better way of doing it. No, God, I'm going to do it this way. Man looks at him in the face and says, no, 
this is what I'm going to do. And we do this on a regular basis. We are all guilty. The second thing, so the first one is that we have rebelled against God. Number two is we are separated from him. Romans 3.23 says, again, for all sinned, and then it says what? And fall short of the glory of God. Glory of God most often is equated to the presence of God. Of God, We see that in the Old Testament, the glory of God. The glory of God is there. It's in the temple. The Shekinah glory is, 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 a, is, is a common term used for the glory of God. The presence of God is often related to the glory of God. And so the picture is this. In Romans 3.23 is that because of our sin, we are cut off from the glory of God. Hear, hear this. We are cut off from the presence of God. For all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. We are cut off in the presence of God from his glory. Guys, in Genesis 3, man was created in perfect communion with God. That There was this open, flowing relationship with nothing hindering their relationship. And then sin entered and it cut them off from their communion with God. It broke the relationship. It cut them from the glory of God. But you see, when we explain the gospel to people, we, we say this, well, well, have you ever lied? And guys, I'm, I've done this. Have you ever lied? Well, then you've sinned. Have you ever done anything wrong? Well, that's what sin is. No, that's not what sin is. Sin that's the effects of sin. Doing wrong is the effect of sin. Our problem is not that we've done wrong things or that we've messed up. Our problem is that we're cut off from God. We are separated from God because we have rebelled against him. The wrong things that we do, those are the effects of sin. Our sin is that we are rebelled against God. We are cut off from God. We are no longer in the presence of God. So we are separated from him. We fall short of the glory of God. Number three is this. We are dead without God. We are dead without God. And we were talking about being alive with God and dead with God. I mean, follow me here. We're in a different context. So when Jesus says, carry your cross, he's saying we are dead to our dreams and dead to our plans and we are alive to Christ. And, but we are dead spiritually here without God. In Romans three nineteen through 20, this is right before the but now. He says, now... We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. The whole world may be held accountable to God. Guys, hear me. You and I stand as rebels against God, separated from Him with nothing to say about it. We, can, we cannot go before God and say, well, but, you know, this happened, or, well, but I, I we have nothing to say about it. We are rebels and we stand before God with nothing to say. We are dead without God. Romans 3.23 says what? The wages of sin is death. Ephesians 2.1 says you are dead in your transgressions. No matter what we do in presenting the gospel, there is nothing we can do to bring dead people alive. We talked about this at Secret Church. There is nothing we can do to bring dead people alive. Uh, Dr. Platt gave an example. He said, when you are in your mummy's womb, uh, did you one day decide, I think I will be born? You had no control over that, did you? Huh. 
It's just like this. If you are dead, if you are dead, you can do nothing to bring yourself back to life. You can do nothing to bring yourself back to life. It is impossible. And that's the point of what Paul is showing us is that we are dead and need something outside of ourselves to bring us back to life. So see the difference, guys. See the difference between our biblical gospel and our modern day gospel. The modern gospel says this, God loves you and has wonderful plans for you. Come get your best life now. The biblical gospel is this, you are an enemy of God and hopelessly dead without him. In your present state, you have no hope whatsoever. Yes, it is a better life in Christ. Yes, we do get abundant life in Christ, but until we see a need for our salvation, there, there is no gospel. You know, what's funny is that, um, you know, saying a statement like that doesn't make someone popular. Um, doesn't sell a lot of books. But that's, that's what Paul just told us. That's what Paul just told us. Now here's what I want to do. We need to pause for just a moment because here's, here's the tension in the gospel that we need to see. Is that the just and gracious God of the universe looked upon hopelessly sinful people. You try to put these two things together and they don't fit. Just and gracious God of the universe looked upon hopelessly sinful people. I mean, he looked upon them with intent to do something, to show them favor, to, to show them grace. He looked upon them to do something. Those two things do not fit together. And if we do not see or feel the tension right here, then we will miss the heart of the gospel. There is a tension here. There is this tension that this just God looks upon dreadfully, hopelessly sinful people with anything but wrath. That is the tension of the gospel. In light of sinfully rebellious people, how can God be both just and gracious? How is it possible for God to be just and gracious towards rebels? How is that possible? Let's read Proverbs 17, 15. I want to show you this a little bit further. It says, He who justifies the wicked and who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Guys, the Lord detests acquitting the guilty. And if you justify and acquit the guilty, or I'm sorry, and if you justify, sorry, the Lord detests acquitting the guilty and he also condemning the righteous. These are an abomination to God. So what is happening in salvation? God is justifying the wicked. He is acquitting the guilty. And he just said in Proverbs that this is wrong, that this is an abomination to God. But what is happening? God is justifying through salvation, justifying the wicked. How can God do that when it is an abomination to him? And that, again, is the tension in the gospel, how can God be just and gracious toward the guilty, toward the wicked? It comes down to this. How can God bring all the wealth of his attributes into play? One of the attributes of God is his love. 
and his wrath, his holiness, and his mercy, his justice, and his grace. How can they begin to come together? And that is where the tension of the gospel lies. And I believe Romans 3, 21-26 is what gives us a picture of this. Guys, the overriding question of the Bible, of this passage, is how can God be kind to rebellious sinners who are, who do, who are due his judgment? See, the thing is, we don't think that that's the question. Like, how many of us lose sleep at night thinking, how can God be so gracious to me who is a sinner? I mean, some of us might, but for the majority, we don't lose sleep at night thinking, you know, why does, why God do you, could you do that? How could you do that? Instead, what do we do? We point the finger at God and we say this, how could someone good go to hell? How could you let them go to hell? Because we are only concerned with man and not with the glory or the character of God. And that, if we do not feel the tension in that passage, because we don't understand the glory and we're not concerned with the character and the, the, the glory of God. Because the question, the Bible is very concerned about the character of God. Is how can God in his justice show kindness to sinners? But we ask, how can God let people go to hell? The Bible asks, God, how can you let rebels into heaven? That's the question of the Bible The tension of the gospel is God's forgiveness to us, hear me, is a threat to his character. Do you understand that? It is a threat to his character. Romans 3.25 says this, Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. That is such a hard verse. And, 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 well, we'll just, we'll just, uh, we'll shoot at it like this. As he left the sins of these people and his divine for in his divine he, he left them unpunished. Up until this point, God had not poured out his full wrath on their sin. So the Old Testament, the Israelites, and were they punished, you know, had to wander in the wilderness? Yes. But God had not, from the beginning of time, has not poured out his full wrath, which is the penalty due for their sin. He had not done that yet. He withheld it. Yes, there was punishment, but guys, do you really think wandering in the wilderness was a big enough punishment for their angst towards God, for their disobedience towards an infinitely holy God? That 40 years of was nothing compared to the penalty that was due for their sin. And so God withheld his wrath until now. In 2 Samuel 12, you don't need to turn there, but David is confronted by Nathan, and David, who, who had just... Uh, had committed an affair with Bathsheba and had, had his, uh, her husband killed. And uh, Nathan says, you, David, you have despised God. You have turned your back on God. And David says, I have. Nathan says, God has put away your sin. He has passed over it. Is that right? I mean, guys, think about it. Any judge in our day that looks at an adulterer or a murderer would and says, that's okay, like would immediately be thrown off the bench. Like we wouldn't have a judge like that. The dilemma posed by the gospel is how can God be both just and gracious? How can the just and gracious God of the universe look upon hopelessly sinful people and have anything for them but wrath? Is that is the question. 
The answer is this. Let's go back to that passage. The just and gracious God of the universe looked upon hopelessly sinful people and sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection. Jesus is the only answer to that tension. He is the only answer to that tension. We have rebelled against God and we are dead. But when Jesus comes on the scene, we see these things. The first one is this. His life displays the righteousness of God. His life displays the righteousness of God. Guys, the problem in Romans 3 is that we've broken the law for all have sinned and fall short of the glory. All have sinned and been cut off from the presence of God. We have broken the law, so we need someone here. We need someone. We need a man, a God in the flesh. We need a man to come live on this earth and live a perfect life. Someone who fulfills the law. Someone who lives and fulfills the covenant. That's why it's so important that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. That's one of the biggest things that set us apart from all other religions in the world is that God, that Jesus was fully God, fully man. If he was not fully God, then he could not live the righteous life that would then later be accredited to you and I. That word is called imputation. He would not, that he, if he was not man, then, he, then a man did not earn our righteousness. Some a God earned our righteousness. But if it was not God as well, then he would not have been able to bear the full level of God's wrath for our sin. Both fully God, and there's other reasons why he had to be both God, but for right now, suffice that as enough for right now. Only God could bear the divine weight of sin. The second thing I want us to see is this, and this is really the apex of the gospel, is that Jesus' death satisfies the wrath of God. Jesus' death satisfies the wrath of God. Let's go back to that Romans 3, that, that main passage we're in, verse 25. It says, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Some of your Bibles talk about Jesus being presented. He presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. Uh, We believe in something called the substitutionary atonement, meaning that Christ was put in our place and he absorbed the wrath of God that was due to each one of us for our sins. So what happened is God presented him who knew no sin as the one who would turn away the wrath of God, forgiving us of our sins. Guys, it is a beautiful picture of what happened on the cross. He asked the question, what do you mean that Jesus' wrath, or Jesus' death satisfied the wrath of God? What do you mean that his death, how, how did he satisfy the wrath of God? Of God, How could Jesus, guys, this is the question, how could Jesus' death on a wooden cross really pay for the price for everyone's sins? See, guys, that's why we spent all this time we're talking about Paul saying we're rebels, and that's why I've pounded it into you this morning. We are rebels and rebels because then when we get to the picture of the cross, we go, how in the world could this man dying on this cross actually pay for my sins. How could that actually happen? So the question, what happened in that moment that could lead to this idea that we could be forgiven of our sins because he went to a cross? 
What happened in that scene? I know we just got done celebrating Easter. uh, But what happened at that scene? What happened? I I want you to listen very quickly. Do not wander off in these next few moments because I'm afraid you might get confused. This is pretty detailed. Because we are not saved from our sins because Jesus was falsely accused by a man and sentenced to death on a cross. We are not saved from our sins because Roman persecutors thrust nails into his hands and his feet. Guys, do you really think that the false judgment of men upon Jesus would be enough to pay for all of our sin debt? Guys, these things that, like, that we, pastors I've heard almost glamorize, like all of the talk about all of the beating and everything that Christ went through and the cat of nine tails and all this, and they'll preach on that for like tw- you know, 25 minutes and they'll spend like two minutes talking about what is the core of the gospel. The core of the gospel is not that he was beaten and scourged and spit upon. That's not what saves us. Now, I do not want to minimize the pain that our Savior went through, but that is not what saves us. It was not those beatings. It was not, the, not even the nail thrusted into the palm of his hand that saves us. Guys, what do you think Jesus was anguishing about in the garden? The garden of Gethsemane the night before, said the Bible records that Jesus was sweating drops of blood. What do you think he was so anguished about? Do you think it was because he was afraid of a cross? Do you think it was because he was afraid of getting beaten? Do you think he was afraid of the cat of nine tails? Because there are countless Christians who have lost their lives on a cross. Matter of fact, many Christians who lost their lives on the cross were burned as they were hanging on the cross as lamps for the people who were walking by. One Christian in India being skinned alive, he says this, I thank you for this. Tear off my old garment. I will soon put on Christ's garments of righteousness. Do you think that these people had more courage than Jesus Christ? Listen to what Jesus says in the garden. He says, if it is not possible, let this cup pass from me. That is not a reference to a Roman nail or a wooden cross. Throughout the Old Testament, you you write these down in your thing and look it up later, but in Isaiah 51, it talks about the cup of God's wrath. In Jeremiah 25, verse 15, it says, A cup filled with the wine of my wrath. In Revelation 16, 19, it says, A cup filled with the wine and the fury of God's wrath. This cup is a picture of God's wrath. This cup, when Jesus says, take this cup away from me, he's saying that it's, it's a cup that's going to be filled with the wrath of God. The reality is that at the cross, it was not about wooden cross or nails, but about your sin, our sin, my sin being thrust upon the Son of God and God pouring out his full wrath due. For all of those sins. 
That's what Jesus was anguishing about in the garden. It was not because he was going to be beaten. It's because he was going to experience the ultimate amount of God's wrath, the perfect amount of God's wrath needed to fulfill the judgment due of all the sins of all mankind. It was in that moment that Jesus was hanging on the cross that God thrust our sins onto his back. God pours out his wrath due. And preachers say, well, God had to turn his, his back away because of the pain his son was in. God didn't turn his back away because of the pain. There was not darkness seen at the cross because of the pain Christ was in. There was darkness seen at the cross because God could not look upon the sin that was ours that was on his back. And God poured out his wrath on that sin. And it's in that moment. It's because of that moment that we can be saved. That we can be reconciled to God. It's in that moment that our sins were paid for. That these rebellious people, that the justice due our sins is paid for. God loves everything that is holy and right and hates everything that is the opposite. And hear me, guys, we are the opposite. We are unholy. As when Jesus went to that cross, he was taking the wrath of the Almighty God, do you and your sin upon himself. I heard a preacher say it like this. He said, it's kind of like, like standing 100 yards from this reservoir of water with this dam that is 10,000 miles high and 10,000 miles wide. And in a blink of an eye, that water, that dam breaks. And it's 100 yards and that water just rushes, just all of it, the whole dam gone. And the water just rushes towards you. And as you're watching it come, the water in the blink of an eye, a hole pops in the ground and the water all sucks down and not a drop hits you. It's like the wrath that was poured out on Jesus in that split moment of time when he was hanging on that cross. It's not the nails that saves us. It's not the beatings that saves us. It's Jesus living a righteous life, God thrusting our sins upon him, and then his wrath due our sins being poured out on his son Jesus in our place as a substitute. That is the beauty of the gospel. That is good news. There is no other news that remotely comes close to that news. Not my son's birth, not my marriage, not my future kid's birth, births. That is good news. The third thing on your notes there says, His resurrection demonstrated the power of God. At the cross, Jesus took the justice due our sin upon himself. 
At the cross, Jesus vindicated the righteousness of God. And at the resurrection, God vindicated His Son, showing Him to be victorious over death, sin, and the grave. The resurrection shows that God's wrath had been, has been duly poured out. Guys, the resurrection is crucial to our salvation because the resurrection shows that the wrath that was due for our sin was satisfactory. That it was fully paid. That there's not an ounce that wasn't paid. That it was sufficient. As God says, I am pleased with my son. I am satisfied. My wrath has been paid. The payment has been paid. You put all this together and it leads to the next phrase. Let's read that. The just and gracious God of the universe looked upon hopelessly sinful people and sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection so that all who have faith in him will be reconciled to God forever. All who have faith in him. In Romans 3.25 it says, Whom God put forward as a propitiation or as a wrath absorber by his blood to be received by faith. 26 says, It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Okay, so this is the subjective element of the gospel. The question is this, How does this picture of Christ become appropriated in our life. So how does, with Jesus' death on the cross, how does that become appropriated in our lives? Um, we're going to look at this much more deeply over the next few weeks. Um, but for right now, I just want to say three things. Number one is that God is the giver of the gospel. Romans 3.24 says, We are justified by His grace as a gift. It's a gift, and we are justified. Romans 3.24, at the beginning, says, and are justified. Understand that that is, that is active voice, not, I'm sorry, that is passive voice, not active, meaning that, that you're not doing anything. You are being justified. So it's not, I'm not throwing the ball, is that is active being thrown at, or the ball being thrown to me, that is passive. It's being done to me. You do nothing to earn your justification. It is all an act of God. The second thing is that God is the gift of the gospel. So God is the giver of the gospel. God is the gift of the gospel. What does the question, what does he give us in salvation? What does he ever thought about this? What does he give us in salvation? It's like, obviously, yes, we get saved, but what does he give us? He gives us himself. He gives us his righteousness. It's him. It's his son, but it's God, God in the flesh, dying on the cross, earning our right, and, and he lives a perfect life. It's his righteousness. It's God's righteousness when he dies on the cross, and, and we accept him. His righteousness is given to us. It is the gift of the gospel. So it's God's righteousness. It's God is the gift. Romans 5, um, 21 through, or, sorry, 3, 21 through 22 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. See, before this, the righteousness was totally through the law. Now the righteousness is inside of us when we accept Christ. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he has made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God gives us his righteousness. God gives us himself. And at the end of that sentence we've been reading, it says, We'll be reconciled to God forever. Okay? The gospel takes us back to God. The problem is that we were separated from God. The solution is that now we are reconciled to him. And God gives us himself. But how do we explain the gospel today again? I'm going to hit this a little bit harder. How do we explain Come to Christ so that you can get his forgiveness. You can go to heaven. You can get satisfaction. You can get success. You can get your best life now. You can get all of these things. Guys, that is blasphemy. We don't come to Christ to get all these things. We come to Christ to get God. Yes, these things are applicable. Yes, we get forgiveness. Yes, we go to heaven. Yes, we get satisfaction. Yes, we get those things. But we don't go to Christ to get things. We go to Christ to get God. We have taken God out of salvation and offered his gifts without him. And it's evident because many people think they're going to heaven but have no relationship with God. No surrender to God, no walk to God. The gospel is a picture of God giving us himself. And the whole picture of the gospel is that we are now united with God. All of those things, I just said forgiveness, satisfaction, heaven, those all flow from God. But God is the source. And guys, we can't be so materialistic that we reach for God's gifts and not God. Do you think in our day today that we could want the things of God and not want God himself? Third thing is God is the goal of the gospel. God is the goal of the gospel. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Romans 3, 21 through 26 does not say that Jesus went to the cross to save us from our sins. Although that happened, but that's not the primary and ultimate reason why Jesus went to the cross. Remember the tension? God's justice and God's graciousness poured out on rebellious people? Jesus went to the cross ultimately to display the character of God. So that his wrath and his love could be experienced in its fullest extent to the way it's necessary for our salvation. His holiness and grace and mercy, all of these things display the character of of God. Romans 3.25, if, if you don't like that, we'll just read verse 3.25. It says this, Whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. Guys, Jesus going to the cross was about God. We just get to reap a whole lot of benefits from it. We get to experience salvation from it. We are reconciled, but it was ultimately for God. John 12, we're almost done here. John 12, 27 through 28. Jesus says, Now is my tr- soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. 
Yes, it provides for our forgiveness, but Jesus going to the cross was ultimately to provide for God's glory. The question is, where do we fit in this picture? Guys, when any one of us, when we have our lives transformed by the righteousness of God, through the death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, and we begin to bear the righteousness of God in our lives, then God gets the glory from our salvation. That's rich. That is rich. If we simplify the gospel to a prayer or walking an aisle and no change afterwards, then we rob God the glory due his name in the gospel. Let's go back to that phrase one more time. It says, The justice and gracious God of the universe looked upon hopelessly sinful people and sent his son Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin and the resurrection so that all who have faith in him will be reconciled to God forever. Guys, here's the risk. is that we can know all of these things, like we can know all of these objective truths, and still not be saved. You can be a pastor and know all of these truths and still not be saved. You can know all the details of the, uh, the crucifixion. You can know all the details about God and Jesus. Because the demons know all of these things and probably know this better than we do ourselves. You say, well, doesn't it say, believe in the Lord Jesus and, and you will be saved? Yes, but it's obvious in Scripture that this belief involves more than just an intellectual acknowledgement of facts. It's way more than just an intellectual acknowledgement of facts. You can know all these things and still be headed to hell. The reality is this, is our destiny, our eternal destiny hinges on a biblical response to the gospel. So the question is this, how, how do we get salvation? How does this happen? If being justified is God's declaration that you are righteous, if you can't pay for this gift because it's free, if you can't work for it because it's grace, then how do we get justification? The answer is this, it's not to recite words, it's not to sign cards or talk to a preacher. The way we get, righteous, the way we get justification is for you to go and throw yourself before the throne of God without anything in your hands. Nothing to your credit, no prayers to your credit, no work to your credit. Throw aside your checklist. Go to God and call out to him with open hands of faith. This is how we're justified. It's God. Not by anything we can bring to the table, but by what Christ brought to the table. This is saving faith. Um, I'm going to say a name. His name's William Cowper. Uh, he was a he was he wrote a famous hymn. Um, but William Cowper was so distraught by the sin in his life. So distraught, and he, he was not a follower of Christ at this point in his life, but he was so distraught by the sin of God in his life that he actually tried to commit suicide three times. William Cowper was then put into 
um, Saint, uh, let's see, Saint Al- Albany, uh, Saint Albines, uh, a sane asylum, yeah, Albans, sane asylum. And after his stay there, about six months into his stay, he found a Bible. Uh, and he was reading through this Bible, and he came to Romans chapter 3, verse 25, and he read these words, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. And I want you to listen to what, uh, to what he wrote. It says this, listen here. William Cowper says, Immediately I received the strength to believe it, and the full beams of the sun of righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made for me. I saw my pardon sealed in his blood, and all the fullness and completeness of his justification. And in a moment I believed and received the gospel. Cowper lived about 35 more years during which he wrote the words to this hymn. And some of you will recognize the words to this hymn. It says, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Religion is hollow. Organizations is hollow. The way we understand the gospel, I'm afraid, the way I've understood it most of my life is hollow. And um, when we understand how sinful we are and how holy God is, we understand that God had to pour out that wrath on something in order for you and I to be reconciled to him. It's on the cross that our sins were thrust upon Christ. (laughs) And God poured out his wrath for you and I on him. How do, we, how do we get saved? How, how, how does this righteousness become appropriate in our lives? It is this. It is by faith. It is by faith. It's by faith alone. It is nothing that we can do to earn it. No, no church services we can go to. No right prayers that we can say. No, no right amount of serving we can do or loving the poor that we can do. It is to... Th- throw, listen, throw ourselves before the throne of God and say, I am here. I am empty handed. I think too many times we try to stand before God and say, I've done this, I've done that, and I've done that. And Paul says that we do nothing that is good. 
If you're a believer, you need to stop going before the throne of God and saying, well, but I did that, but I did that. You stand by the th- in front of the throne of God only by the blood of Jesus Christ. Only by his payment that he paid. That's the gospel. This is the gospel. What I want to do, I want to pray for us. We're going to sing one song and then we'll be dismissed. Um, I just want to pray for us. Father, as the band comes and gets ready, I just... Father, in these next few moments, I pray that we would sing this song like we have never sung it before. And Father, as we reflect in the words that we've just talked about and and the holiness of of who you are and, and Father, the justice that is due, um, that that had to be met, the, the, the payment that was due our sin and And Father, that you did not leave that up to us to pay that price. But Father, you provided a way. Father, I love you so much. Amen.